Welcome to Pursue Ministries. You're listening to Men's Fraternity, Session 8, Depravity Wound Part 2. The speaker is Bill Howard. Well, guys, I came across a story I thought you'd like, since guys kind of trickle in here for a second, but I'll read this to you. But uh, it's a story about little Leroy. And it says, little Leroy came into the kitchen where his mom was making dinner. His birthday was coming up, and he thought this was a good time to tell his mother what he wanted. Mom, he said, I want a bike for my birthday. Little Leroy was a bit of a troublemaker. He'd gotten into trouble at school and at home. Leroy's mother asked him if he thought he deserved to get a bike for his birthday. And little Leroy, of course, thought he did. And so his mother, being a Christian woman, wanted Leroy to reflect on his behavior over the last year. Why don't you go to your room, Leroy, think about how you've behaved this year, and then write a letter to God and tell him why you deserve a bike for your birthday. So little Leroy stomped up the steps to his room and sat down to write God a letter. Here's letter one. Dear God, I've been a very good boy this year, and I'd like a bike for my birthday. I want a red one. Your friend, Leroy. Well, Leroy knew this wasn't true. So he had, he had not been a very good boy this year, so he tore up the letter and started over. Letter number two, dear God, this is your friend, Leroy. I've been a, a, a good boy this year, and I would like a red bike for my birthday. Thank you, your friend, Leroy. Leroy knew this wasn't true either, so he tore up the letter and started again. Letter three, I have been an okay boy this year. I still would really like a bike for my birthday, Leroy. Leroy knew he couldn't send this letter to God either, so he started a fourth letter. God, I know I haven't been a good boy this year. I'm very sorry. I will be a good boy if you just send me a bike for my birthday. Please, thank you, Leroy. Well, Leroy knew this wasn't true. This letter was not gonna get him a bike. Now, Leroy was very upset in his own heart. He went downstairs and told his mom that he wanted to go to church. Leroy's mom thought her plan had worked as Leroy had looked very sad. Just be home for dinner, Leroy's mom told him. So Leroy walked down the street to the church on the corner and little Leroy went into the church and up to the altar. He looked around to see if anyone was there. Leroy bent down, picked up a statue of the Virgin Mary. He slipped it under his shirt, ran out of the church, down the street, into the house and up to his room. He shut the door in his room and sat down with a piece of paper and a pen, Leroy began to write his last letter to God. God, I've got your mama. If you want to see her again, send the bike. Leroy. <laughs> anyway, I got It's funny, guys, isn't it, how we kind of wrestle with God? Um, you know, a question oftentimes that I ask guys is, hey, uh, I wonder, are you thinking about God at all? Or have you thought about God lately? And almost always people would say yes. I recall a time meeting a man who was a professing atheist. And we met at the Cracker Barrel up there at Harding in 65. And uh, it was an awkward meeting because somebody wanted me to meet this friend. And... Uh, so I'm thinking to myself, he's going to be ready for war. So we sit down, and all as I said, I said, hey, 
I said, this is kind of an awkward meeting. I just sort of, there was an elephant in the table and it was sitting right there, which was God. And I just said, hey, uh, this is just sort of an awkward meeting. I said, I just got one question for you. Do you think about God at all? This guy, professing atheist, put his head down and said, every day, every day. And so guys, uh, it's one of these things in our life and the reason why is because God exists. Now, there's a part of this that I'm not sure how to grab hold because no one's ever seen God. So you ask the question, well, how do you know there is a God? Really, how do you know? And there's two huge billboards in life. You know what they are? As we travel down life's road, that says, hey, God, God, or God says to us, hey, I'm here. You know what the billboards are? The Bible, which is an amazing book. Uh, I was just telling uh, Keith that the, or Kevin that the oldest known document to mankind is the Bible. Uh, the first five books of the Bible is the oldest known document of any ancient history we've got. Did you guys know that? And that, and it's an amazing book, but the other billboard we have, which has marked the course of how we keep time, and it's a person named Jesus Christ. In other words, if you wonder, is there a God? All I can tell you is he entered, God entered space and time and puts on an earth suit. And he walked on the earth for about 33 years. And the people whom he created <laughs> killed him because they didn't understand him. But you know why they put him on a cross, guys? It's not because of he was a good man because he was a good man. You know why they put him on a cross? Because he claimed to be God. That's why, period. So, and he said to everybody, by the way, uh, y'all put me on this cross. I'm going to die. By the way, I'm, the reason why I'm dying is for you. And I'm going to raise up. And by the way, anybody who believes in me, God, I'll take with me forever. And that's why Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will live even though you die. How about that, guys? That's why I always tell guys, hey, listen. If Jesus isn't who he said he was, then we're, we're both sunk. Because there is no other billboards out there. There's never been a human being that's claimed to be God and validated it other than Jesus Christ. And so if he's not who he said he is, we're both in the same boat and that's, we're toast. But if he is, wow, I've got everything to look forward to and nothing to lose. But to not deal with him and come into a relationship with him, you've got everything to lose and nothing to gain. And so this morning, guys, as we kind of unpack this second half of the depravity wound, um, we want to dig a little bit further because in life, what we find is that there is a place where if you are wrestling in your heart 
and you're not sure, and you're not, you're lacking peace, and you have maybe an emptiness, and maybe you're going to church, maybe you're trying to upgrade your life, maybe you're trying to be a better husband, a quote, better Christian or whatever, but you're going, you know what? Something's missing. Now, I can't answer where you are in your journey. All I can tell you is, if you have a sense that something's missing, it very well could be something's missing. And so today, guys, as a man on the masculine journey is where you can find how to fill up if there's something missing. Because if you remember, some of why we do what we do is a result of what happens to us. It's something outside of us. But most of why we do what we do is a result of something in us. And so the change that has to occur in a masculine journey is something inside of us. Okay? So we've kind of been unpacking this. So this morning, let's continue on our journey with the depravity wound, this black heart that really we all have. And so let's continue on with what it means generally speaking. So we're going to look at it generally, broad picture, what does it mean? And then specifically, as a man, how does it impact us in our journey as a man? And so generally here in your notes, uh, I think it's page 14. Uh, depravity means we are all dysfunctional by nature. It's a common word, isn't it? So the good news is we're all messed up <laughs> by nature. And so as we had mentioned last time, if you're born with a nature that's depraved, and the Bible teaches this, that actually men are not born inherently good. Men are actually born inherently evil. So that the evil that happens in the world is not because a bad guy goes off stray. It's because a bad guy just lives out what he already is. See, what the Bible teaches is we all are born with a bad nature and then our parents and the world and government sort of keep our bad nature in check. But every once in a while, bad people fall through the cracks and they kill other people and they rob and they pillage and they destroy. As I'd mentioned in the Minnesota Crime Commission, every child born would kill you as he's trying to take the watch off your hand if he was big enough to do it. Because in his nature, that's what he is. And so something has to happen then inside to alter or change what we're all infected with, which is a bad nature. Because the Bible teaches this thing called sin is like a disease that's greater than AIDS or Ebola. It's, we're born with it. And it's why we die. And so... There's a solution, though. We're going to get there in a minute. But this infectious nature that we all have uh, is within us. Uh, Dick Morris, if you, you guys probably don't remember him, maybe some of you do, but it's when Bill Clinton was the president of the United States. He had a guy who 
was uh, a, an advisor to the president, very powerful man. And he ended up going in a direction with his life because of his own personal arrogance that led him to a, a, an immoral life that became known and everything fell apart in his life. And the headlines read after his uh, life sort of was unveiled. The headlines read this, after Morris hits bottom, his hands shake and his voice breaks. That was the headline. Uh, it's, at the pinnacle of his career, he goes to the, into this precipitous fall. And so here's what the article had to say, quote, Morris had acknowledged that he had been egotistical and out of control before his precipitous fall from grace, he ignored his wife, he ignored his friends, he ignored the rules. My sense of reality was just altered, he said. I started out, by the way, he uh, had a tryst with a call girl down in Texas, which with whom he had a child, all the while being married and being the presidential advisor. So not living a good life, a secret life. And so I, he said, I started out being excited working for the president. Then I became arrogant. Then I became grandiose. Then I became self-destructive. His hand shook and his voice wavered as Morris struggled for the words to explain what led him to this year-long tryst with a call girl and a lengthy relationship with a woman in Texas with whom he had a child. All the time while being married to his wife, Elaine. Both relationships were revealed in tabloids during the presidential campaign. It's too simple, he says, to say it was a sexual addiction or saying I am now sick like I had pneumonia or the mumps. This is his words. He said, it's not that at all. So the question is, well, what is it? In other words, why do, quote, good guys do bad things? I think he nails it. Listen to this. He said, I have a fundamental flaw in my character, a fundamental weakness, if you will, a fundamental sin. I'm prone to being infatuated with power and believing the rules don't apply. Every man, he said, who turns 40 should read the Greek tragedies. They all have the same idea within them. The thing you think will help you move up is the very thing that then destroys you. And I'm a living example of that. Now, I don't know where Dick Morris is in his personal life, but I think he's pretty accurate to say, it's not something that's from outside of me. It's something inside. I have a fundamental flaw. That's the depravity wound. So number two here, guys, depravity means most of my real problems are inside of me, not outside of me. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the Bible said, uh, the heart of a man is deceitfully wicked. Wow. So see, the Bible doesn't say, God doesn't go, wow, the heart of man is inherently good. No, the Bible says the heart of a man is deceitfully wicked. And that's why we do oftentimes the things we do. So, unfortunately, a lot of guys spend a lot of time trying to convince ourselves that the reason I am who I am and the reason why I do what I do is because of somebody else. It's not because of me. It's not because I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. It's because somebody's not doing something for me 
or somebody did something to me that I'm reacting to. So I'm a victim of circumstances, of my employer, of my employment situation, of my marriage because my wife and so on. But guys, do you know how a worm gets into an apple? You know how a worm gets into an apple? Anybody know? It lay, an insect lays an egg in the apple blossom. And then when the, app, the, the blossom begins to turn into a seed and the apple grows around the seed, the egg has already been implanted at the heart of the apple. And so a worm actually burrows his way out of the apple, not in. Did you guys know that? And see, that is a great illustration of us. See, the problem isn't something that's gone outside of us into us. It's we were born with this infectious egg that gives birth and begins to eat its way out and causes us and moves us in directions that sometimes you go, man, I know I shouldn't do that, but dang, I find myself doing the very thing I ought not to do. Why is that? Because you got a worm in your heart. You're born with it. It's your nature. The Bible teaches this. And so what Jesus Christ, guys, died for was that. It's to kill the worm. It's to put to death that part of you. And that has to die. And that's why he died, for that, okay? Um, it's hard to admit this, isn't it, guys? Uh, somebody once said, all the world is strange except me and thee. And even thou art a little strange. In other words, I'm not gonna, I, there's nothing wrong with me. Leona Helmsley, um, if you guys remember, she was a hotel heiress. And what was the name of the hotel she built? Very nice hotels, I can't remember. But anyway, uh, she was put in prison for tax evasion. Uh, extremely wealthy woman, but she was actually put in prison for tax evasion. And when she stood before the judge, this is what she said. The only thing I'm guilty of is being me. Which is exactly right. Yeah, that's why you're in prison, because of you. And so um, it's, a, it's a hard thing to come to grips with. So thirdly, guys, depravity cannot be eradicated by education, a better environment, self-understanding, or willpower. We must be saved from our depravity. In other words... Going to Vanderbilt is not going to be the total solution. Going to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, all those things may be okay, but it's not until something happens inside of you because you and I have to be saved from who we are, right? And so... Uh, to be saved, by the way, guys, by God, is very, very easy. 
In fact, it's so easy that Jesus Christ said kids can get it. The older you get and quote, the smarter you become, the more difficult it is. Because uh, you've got to come to a place where you recognize it's not anything else that's going to deliver me from me. I've got to put my trust in someone I've never seen to do this. You know, in 1995, there's a guy named Zach Mayo who was uh, on the Arabian Sea on the USS America. He was a Marine. And about two o'clock in the morning, he comes out to get a breath of fresh air about two o'clock in the morning. And all he's got on is his deck suit. And somehow, as he's sort of leaning over the edge of the ship, he falls off. Okay, if you've ever seen an aircraft here, that's a pretty good fall. <laughs> he actually survives the fall, finds himself coming up in the Arabian Sea with the ship sailing off without him. With just he himself in his deck suit paddling in the water. Now, can you imagine what he's thinking? He's probably, first of all, he's probably going, how stupid am I? <laughs> but secondly, he's probably thinking, and I don't know if you've ever found this in your own life, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I, I have gotten myself in trouble. I'm in a mess. And I bet you his heart just started racing like crazy, realizing, you know what? I'm probably going to die. So what they actually teach guys if you do fall off the ship is you actually take your suit and you tie up the ends, the arms and the legs, and then you, at the top, sort of draw it up and then you start blowing. Apparently the material is such that it can actually hold air for a certain amount of time. You basically blow it up like a balloon. So he blew it up. Here's what happens, guys. The next morning, they do roll call. They miss him. And so nobody's looking for him. So 24 hours goes by and nobody even knows he's lost or certainly off the boat. 36 hours later, he finds himself still dog paddling. 36 hours later in the Arabian Sea. True story, by the way. Until uh, a Pakistani fisher, fishing boat is apparently sees something flopping in the water, which is a naked man. And they come up and they see Zach Mayo. And at that moment, uh, they're ready to throw him a life preserver. Now, let me ask you this. When they looked at Zach Mayo and said, hey, do you want to be saved from your condition? Do you think it was difficult for him to say yes? <laughs> Guys, listen. I'm telling you, God came into the world to save sinners. Now, like Zach Mayo, some people will grab the life preserver and some people won't. It's a sad thing. But the Bible teaches all the world is out in the middle of the ocean, dog paddling. And everybody's got a certain amount of time, depending upon the years you've got on the planet, 
But God entered the world and came through Christ. And he is, why the Bible says, a savior. He's a life savior, a life preserver. So guys, God didn't come in the world to dunk us down and put us under. He came to save us out of what we are in. And that's true for every human being. But people don't get it. And so they'll move through life trying to upgrade their life through getting smarter or willpower or whatever. And so number four then, it says that depravity then wears all kinds of sophisticated masks, our own ability to try to make life work. We wear educated masks, beauty masks, personality ones, and even religious ones. There are a lot of people right now in Nashville, Tennessee, going to church and they don't know why. There's a lot of people who are going to church trying to upgrade their life, trying to learn different solutions to dog paddle, trying to stay afloat, trying to come up with new ways to blow air into a system that's actually not going to totally keep you afloat. And so people kind of do religion as a way of trying to get them better with God. And all I can tell you, men, is that getting to heaven is not a reward for good behavior. Heaven is not a reward. It's a gift. Totally a gift. We'll talk about it in a second. Fifthly, depravity means we must not trust ourselves alone. We must not trust ourselves alone. Our will cannot get it done. For example, I've told my boys two things in life about our journey, and that is this. I've said to my sons, guys, listen, there are two things I cannot do for you. I cannot forgive your sin because I didn't create you. I just got to assist God in the process of getting you into the world. That was a fun moment. I wish it was longer, but it was a moment. But you know what? I can't, you haven't offended me because I didn't create you. And secondly, I cannot raise you from the dead. I can't save you from what inevitably is gonna happen to you. And, and that's that you're going to die. Now, you might die in a car crash or jumping off a cliff when you ought not to have done it in a, in a stream of water that's too shallow. You might do something crazy and die earlier than you should. But I can't save you from what inevitably is going to happen to you. But I'll tell you what. I told him, my father will do this for you. He'll save you. Because here's what he did. My father has given his son to come into this world and he actually died and rose again so that when you die, if you put your trust in him, he'll raise you up too because he forgave you and he can raise you from the dead because those are two things I can't do for you. And so, because I want them to know men, they can't trust in themselves alone. And then thirdly, number six, uh, admitting my depravity is the first step to finding God. 
coming to this place where I go, okay, I get this. You know, it's why in Matthew 5, 3, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. You ever heard that phrase? Yeah, it's the first time Jesus actually speaks publicly sort of in a, with a message. And he starts it out saying, blessed are those who are broken in spirit. Wow. You'd almost think he'd say, Bo Parrish, blessed are you because you are a self-made, self-willed, unbelievably working hard man that's put yourself together and I am impressed. Blessed are you. I've made you, boy, you've really done something amazing with it. Now, blessed is those who are broken in spirit. The word literally means a man who's broken, contrite, emptied. Somebody once said, it's not till a man comes to the end of himself that he'll find that he's at the beginning of God. It's when you come to the end of yourself. And that's why sometimes guys have to have their world rocked. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to arouse a deaf world. And isn't it true, guys? When life comes to the edge and you're not sure, don't you in your heart go, God, God, please help me. And guys, it's better to do that earlier than life than later. Because you'll benefit a lot more if you do it earlier. And so you got to admit this um, of who we are. Number seven, progress and godliness will parallel my increased apprehension of the depth of and extent of my depravity. In other words, the more I understand about who I really am, the, 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 the less likely I am to trust in me. And the more, the more I understand about who I am, the more I come to the place where I go, you know what, I can't do this. And boy, you're at a good place if you get, if you get there. Because God loves a broken spirit. He loves a guy who said, you know what? Okay, you now have got to a place where you understand that I can do things for you and I can change you and I can change your, some of your circumstances. I can do some things in your life now that you admitted of who you are. You know, it's amazing because Paul, who wrote a good deal of the New Testament, listen to what he says about himself. Paul says this, he said, Jesus Christ came, in, came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Okay, that's Paul. He also said, there's no good thing, Paul said, that dwells in me. No good thing that dwells in me. Wow, really? The writer of half of the Bible is saying there's no good thing that dwells in him? The world is antithetical to that, right? Oh, there's really good stuff in you. Uh, he said this, I'm the least of the brethren. Now, all I can tell you is, from the world's point of view, you'd say this, that guy has a terrible self-image. That guy is sucking wind. 
right? That guy needs, he just needs to look in the mirror and, and say, I'm somebody. And yet when he looks in the mirror, he goes, I'm a nobody. But, but, God is somebody. And it's in him he writes that I live, move, and have my being in God. See that? Because he's found his life in his creator. And so that's the daily process, guys. If God delivers you from the the imperiling doom that's going to come upon us, which is death, then as you begin to grow and understand, you know what? I need to be delivered or saved from myself today. I'm telling you right now, I am more apt to do something stupid today at 52 years old than I've ever been in my life. I fear I feel more fragile, more weak, more apt to do something stupid. And I could do it in a second today. And so I think, guys, as you grow, your increased apprehension of understanding who you really are, what happens then is your faith then grows in the one who delivers you with the admission and understanding and apprehension of I'm not worthy of trust, but God, who now lives in me, is the one I need to follow. Because if I follow my own heart, oftentimes, I can do some pretty stupid things. All I can tell you is, many times, uh, my wife and I have spoken for almost 20 years now around the country on marriage. And uh, we've been all kinds of places. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard from people who want to leave their marriage this phrase, God wants me to be happy. I can't tell you how many times I hear it. God wants me to be happy. And so they they become thoroughly convinced that's what God wants for them. (laughs) And the reason why they're not happy is because they're married to somebody who's messing me up. It's amazing. It's amazing. I always just simply say, can you show me where God told you that? Can you show me, at least if you're a professing follower of Jesus Christ, from the revealed word of God, where God wants you to be happy? Here's the reason why I say it, because it's not in there. It's not in there. God wants you to be trusting in him. And from that, he will then give you joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He'll give you things as a result of your trusting in him. And so those things are a byproduct of obeying and being what he wants you to be. But see, people really believe that God exists for them. And if we could sort of, like in Bruce Almighty, put up a screen right now that has all of the text messaging from people's prayers, you would basically probably hear, hey God, I want you to, would you please, can you do this? 
In other words, I want you to be for me what I have created you to be for me. Because most people believe God exists for them. Is though God sort of this big old Pillsbury Doughboy, like a big old Papa Grandfather just loves you. And all he wants is for you to be happy. Honey, just be happy. And all the other junk he doesn't care about. See, the problem with that, guys, is that may be a nice, feel-good concept. But listen, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is dangerous. And you've got to come to a place where in Proverbs it says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, period. God is dangerous. And we have to come to a place where you have been arrested by him and say, God, listen, <laughs> you're the creator. I, you don't exist for me. I just want to tell you, I, I now understand I exist for you. I'm made by you and for you, and I've been put on this planet for a purpose by you, and the best way for me to live is to come into alignment with you, and therefore all the things that I'm created to experience, everything I want can be found in you. That's the movement, guys. And so... This apprehension of the depth and extent of my depravity is what will help you begin to grow if you already know Christ. Um, point B, specifically, what does it mean um, for us as men? Well, men have a natural tendency to avoid domestic responsibility, specifically in our lives, because it's almost like when it comes to the area of family and home, and men have uh, at least the last hundred years kind of abandoned the idea that to be a man is to be a, a good dad and a good husband. It's almost like to be a man is to just do your own thing, be your own man, and pursue your own dreams. Now, that's part of it. Nothing wrong with that, as long as the people that are attached to you aren't being hurt, because a responsibility primarily is domestic. In other words, I hope you guys understand that the reason you work is to be a provisionary leader for the people that you've been given charge of. In other words, if you said yes to a woman and she, and you got her to say yes to you, when you did that, you became the primary and sole responsible party to provide and protect and to care for that woman. That's what she was saying yes to. And then if you have children with that woman, you become the sole primary responsible party to ensure that those kids are protected and provided for. That's why we work. Essentially, that's why we work. To care for those around us. And so, but we tend to work for ourselves. And we see work as somehow that it's where we find our great glory. And uh, it's interestingly, it's interesting because 
if God becomes void in our heart, and all of a sudden we see that we are the primary reason for being on the planet, and that work is that part of my life that I find my identity, then what happens is, guys, when God is void and the cause that transcends us, which is His cause, is not preeminent, what happens is we'll go after, after the most immediate gratification, which is our career. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with work. But sometimes as a guy, you can get your accolades from work. Because when you come home and your wife looks at you, she, and all I can tell you right now, guys, my boys don't care right now that I'm sitting here talking to you. They don't give a rip. Uh, I've gone in places and uh, spoken to thousands of people before. And, you know, you kind of go, wow, that was kind of cool. And if you go home, walk in your door, I'm telling you, my little boys aren't going to look at me and go, Daddy, really? Wow. <laughs> They're going to go, Daddy, would you hug me? Would you love me? Would you help me? See, that's all they care about. They don't care about what I do. They just care that, uh, that I'm there and I'm providing and protecting them and giving them what they need. Does that make sense? Uh, but we tend to avoid this. And I just want to tell you, men, that there's an axiom in the Bible, and the axiom is this. Anytime you find a command in the Bible, it's telling you to do something that otherwise you would not naturally do it. For example... When the Bible said, husbands, love your wives, you know why it says that? Because that's not natural. It's not natural for a man to love a woman in marriage. Did you know that? In other words, if you're sitting there going, God, how come this relationship that I'm in with my wife is so tense and hard? Because it's natural. And that's why the Bible said, hey, listen, natural man. That if you have me in your life, I'm now giving you, I, by the way, you exist for me. I'm going to give you a set of direction. I've given you a blueprint by which you can follow and submit your life to. And by the way, you love your wife. And the model is the same way I love you. By the way, God would say to us, you don't look very favorable to me either. Because the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. While we were yet enemies, Christ died. See, Jesus didn't die because he went, wow, what a lovely group of people. He died because we put him on the cross. All people. Husbands, love your wives when she's unlovable. That's when it all comes to, to play. Wow. That's powerful. And so, but man in our depravity would tend not to do that. And so we've got voices that are telling us to get involved. God, the scripture, a wife. Honey, I need you. I, please help me. Uh, secondly, men tend to rule harshly over women and children in this depravity. And the word in uh, Genesis 3.16 when it said the man shall rule over his wife... 
uh, it's the word mishal, the Hebrew word mishal, which means harsh. It's like a harsh ruler, a dictator. By the way, anywhere the Bible's not taught, in other words, in the true sense of how the Bible teaches, women are taken advantage of. Women are ruled over harshly. There are places right now in the, in the world that well, a woman can't even show her face. If she doesn't obey her husband, her husband can cut her nose off. Right? But that's the curse. That's what men tend to do. And then thirdly here, men tend to get lost in careers and lose sight of their transcendent purpose. Men tend to lose or get lost in careers and lose sight of their transcendent purpose. Okay? So the tendency for men, guys, if you read your Bible again in Genesis 5, it sort of gives generations and it said so-and-so lived so many years and he had a, some children and then he died. So he lived and he died. He lived and he died. And the tendency for man is just to be in this vanity of all vanities, which is to live to die. And that's it. I remember I had a seminary professor, Howard Hendricks, once said that a lot of people believe that we're in the land of the living going to the land of the dying. And so those people are trying to gobble up everything they can because this is all there is. Because they're going to the land of the dying. But the cool thing is, guys, when you come to faith in God through the person of Jesus Christ and he delivers you from that cycle of working, living, dying. He actually removes you from the cycle to work, living, working, to live again forever. And so he transitions you from the idea of being in the land of the living, going to the land of the dying, to where now what you discover if you read your Bible, that you're actually in the land of the dying Going to the land of the living. Because here's the deal. Anybody in this room that's over 50, you got Larry, Glenn, Glenn are you over 50 yet? Come on, Glenn. <laughs> David, you, yeah. You realize, and it, really, anybody who's over 30, you realize things start not clicking right. Right? Things start not to work the way they ought to work. Yeah, a couple of you guys. Right, Kevin? Because we're dying. But guess what? Going to the land of the living. So I can live to live again. That's the cool thing about being a follower of Christ. Okay, a couple more comments and then we'll get us into our group. Uh, two perspectives. So how can a wounded heart be healed? What do we do, guys? How can a wounded heart be healed? Uh, two perspectives. Uh, from the left, and this is my story, and I'll call this the irreligious left. Not religious, irreligious. In other words, I didn't grow up, and maybe some of you, are, I'm, because there's two groups of guys in here. There's some of you that grew up going to church every day. Not every day, but every Sunday, maybe. And other, other of you never hardly graced the door of a church. That was me. I grew up in southeastern Idaho, and... 
I'm not kidding you. I went to church. I count the number of times in my hand. I went to church from birth to 20. Uh, I remember the times I do remember, it felt so awkward and weird. And I, I do remember uh, if I ever did go, I remember kind of going like it was sort of like a so what. Now, I do remember the sense that, well, it's because there's a God and it's somehow we're supposed to be worshiping this God. But it never made any sense to me at all. And so when I was 20 years old, I found myself at the top of a hill kneeling down crying on September 22nd, 1979. It's more than 20 years ago. And, and I was saying, God, are you there? Are you there? I'm telling you, crying to where I can hardly breathe. I was a junior in college. Um, you know how I got there? Well, it started when I was seven. I had a friend who got, my next door neighbor got struck by lightning, killed him. My mom took me to see him in the funeral home. I recall seeing Clifford's body laying in a casket. And I remember thinking in my own heart, okay, I see Clifford's body. It looked like somebody took a match and torched him. All the hair was curled up all over his body. And I mean, it just freaked me out. And I remember thinking, Clifford's not there. His body's here. Where is Clifford. And I'm telling you guys, that freaked me out. If I could say it almost in a humorous way, it scared the hell out of me. Uh, not right then, but eventually. Because it put into me a thought. And here was the thought. It's a great thought. And it's, it's the thought that I'm going to die. It's seven. Now, a lot of times, I think guys go through life thinking they're never going to die. All I can tell you is, at that moment, I remember going, I'm going to die. And so I couldn't sleep that night. I, it really freaked me out. It scared me. And I went out and I asked my mom. I said, Mom, I'm afraid to die. And so she, all she knew, and again, my mom wasn't a church-going woman, but uh, she did have a sense of trusting in Jesus Christ. And she said this, well, you need to trust in Jesus. Well, I had no clue what that meant. But I became a pretty big fan of his after that. Because I thought somehow Jesus was attached to death and life. I didn't know anything. It didn't change my life at all. But I became interested. I remember uh, when I got into high school, I started to drink, smoke, chew, and went with girls who do. <laughs> And uh, I recall in my sporting events, I got very uh, um, superstitious. Is that the word? And I kind of had all kinds of routines. And one of them was I would uh, kind of do this little uh, deal where I cross my legs and I put my fingers up like a Buddhist. And I would, I would chant, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And nobody knew this. This is just me. And I had this little kind of deal I would do. And uh, because, I, I don't know, I had this part of me that when I, if there's a God, maybe I'd sure like to know him if he's there. So I kind of got into this sort of very personal sort of religious little deal. And, but it had no change in my life. If you looked at my life, I mean, I could, I could swear like a sailor. I could tell a story. Uh, I remember in my college dorm room, my freshman year in college, sitting around and we'd get into these storytelling situations. And man, I'd start telling these stories that had some very flavorable language to it. 
And uh, you know, because swearing is an art, right? That was me. I remember in college, my sophomore year in college, doing a speech on the value of living together before marriage. And I still remember looking at my class going, and some people call this living in sin. Just like that. <laughs> like these religious crazy kooks. That's me. And so I got to a place though, men, that I just became lost because I had in me a real emptiness, a real restlessness, a real sense of purposelessness. Uh, I worked at a ski resort and I remember uh, sitting in that little shack on the top of a mountain. People come and get off, the, you know. You know what those guys are doing up there? Wondering why they're on the planet. Because that's, that's what I was doing. I remember chewing tobacco, sitting up on the top of a ski lift, watching people and just going, why, what the heck am I here? Who am I? I don't know. <laughs> and I began to try to numb out through girls and partying. Uh, I ended up playing football at Idaho State, thinking that maybe that would give me a sense of fulfillment. And uh, nothing, nothing. And so, in, and I, got, I started getting my degree in psychology, and I remember asking the question in my psych classes, uh, tell me the purpose for living. Because I begin to have four questions, guys. Where did I come from? Why am I here? How am I supposed to live while I'm here? And where am I going when it's all over? And the where I'm, where I'm going when it's all over was a big question. And what I discovered is I couldn't get a dang answer. Nobody would answer it. And I got, I got increasingly frustrated. So I thought, well, I'm going to give God a try. So my junior year of college, I actually went into a church. Uh, bef- uh, I don't know, it was probably late August, right before two-a-day practices in football. And I remember um, asking the pastor, I said, hey, listen, I'm interested in kind of connecting to God. And, and he said, well, you need to get confirmed. So I said, what does that mean? And he told me, and I jumped through some hoops for about two or three weeks and I got quote confirmed on a Sunday where they did this sort of religious service thing and I remember going okay whatever I'm supposed to get with God I'm ready for it and nothing and then I remember right before I was getting ready to go to practice uh, before school started I walked into this guy's office I said hey listen would you you mind praying for me because I'm getting ready to go and it's a very competitive time in football and so on. And he laughed and he said, no, you, you don't need to pray. God already knows what you need. And he never prayed for me. And by the way, when I was getting confirmed, he actually held up the Bible and he said, listen, don't take this too literally. Too many people take this too literally. It's really a, a sort of a guidebook, but it's almost like I could interpret it how I wanted it. I just remember going, this guy, well, it turns out this guy was actually messing with his secretary. And so I'm like, I walk out of that church going, well, there's a God. He ain't in that one. (laughs) So I was just sort of disillusioned. And so that fall, September 22nd, probably a month later, uh, we had just played Boise State. Uh, We got beat, as always, because Boise State has been good for years. And I remember I, I was back in my little apartment, or my house. I lived with... Two black guys meet another white guy. We're all on the football team together. And 
they used to call us the Oreo house. <laughs> and we'd all party there. We'd always had two kegs of beer. And people would come, I mean, in our little town there, college town, and people would pack into our house, and it was And I had my arm around a girl and, and nursing a beer. And all I can tell you is I just freaked out. And I took this beer and I threw it on top of this. I just threw it. I went, and I just started swearing like crazy. Some nice earthy terms. And I got on my motorcycle and I just tore out of there. People are going, what is your deal? And I didn't know what my deal was. I just knew I was not. I was so restless. And I climbed to the top of this hill and I got off September 22nd, and I remember the moon was real bright, just like it is right now. But in Idaho, it's the big sky, and it's, it seems huge. I remember looking up, and I said, God, are you there? I don't know who you are. I don't know if you exist. I don't know. And I just started crying like crazy. So for about 30 minutes, I just wept. And all I just said is, God, please help me. I don't know. And I remember men thinking, if there's no God, I'm, I'm not kidding you, I was going to freak out. Because it made no sense to me that all of life was about just living to die. It made no sense to me. Because it seemed that I was made for more. But I, had, I couldn't find any answers. And so I came back to my little apartment, went to bed, and the next day, God showed up living inside of another guy named John. John was a freshman. Uh, he was from Hamilton, Montana, and he wasn't a football player, but God jumped in his, into his life a year before. When he came to Idaho State as a freshman, he got involved with a ministry called Athletes in Action and wanted to start a Bible study with football players on the team. And he started going around. He just went to all the guys and personally asked every guy on the team if you'd like to come to this Bible study he was going to start. And uh, so we said, sure. So 15 guys shows up, showed up, uh, me being one of them. And he asked the question, who do you think God is? And we all went around the room and tried to answer the question. And, and we all shot major air balls. And me missing the basket the most. And after we said who we thought God was, he took his Bible and he read a couple things. I remember going, what he said and what I said are really different. And I went, wow, that guy seems to know something. I've never met somebody that kind of seems to know something. And he has something about him that peace and something that is, seems to be unusual. So I pursued him and we met for the next four or five months and he began to help me put my faith together. I had all kinds of questions. Then on Easter Sunday of 1980, I found myself at a conference, about 300 college students. And uh, we went to this retreat up in West Yellowstone, Montana. And there was a guy that I used to, uh, my first year at college was at Boise State. And I walked on at Boise State. And the first, the, the guy that played football, there was a guy named Bob McCauley. He was a linebacker. We used to call him Brawling Bob because Bob would go to the Bronco hut, get drunk, and inevitably beat the stink out of somebody. <laughs> he would literally go through the bar and just pick a fight and then go out and beat somebody up. Okay, well, when I go, okay, this is about three years later now, I'm going to this retreat in West Yellowstone, Montana. Guess who I'm rooming with? Bob McCauley. 
And Bob McCauley, uh, I remember walking in the room, and I'm going, Bob McCauley? He I'm telling you, this guy had an altered nature. This guy was a different man. <laughs> I remember him sitting and just with joy and because he was always so dark and mean and bad. And all of a sudden he had this joy and this peace and this confidence and this certainty. And he was talking about Jesus Christ as though he knew him. I'm like, wow, wow, that's amazing. And so all of the things combined, it came to a place in Easter Sunday where a guy told me about who God was in the person of Christ and what he did for me on a cross. And that I could actually know him, that heaven wasn't a reward, it was a gift. And all I had to do was receive it. And at that moment on Easter Sunday, he said, if that makes sense to you, just ask God and take what he's already given you and ask him for eternal life. And I remember I bowed my head and boom, the lights kind of came on. Did he come on for you, Kevin? I don't know if you guys met Kevin. Kevin just showed up here a couple weeks ago. Can I just... I met Kevin, uh, I guess, less than a couple weeks ago. Last Monday. And uh, Kevin and I sat down, and we kind of worked through some of this stuff, and we got to the place where heaven's not a reward. For a good behavior, it's a gift. We kind of worked through that, and Kevin admitted I'd never really come to that place where I've asked God, and, and Kevin did. And uh, it was pretty cool. And I remember Kevin, can I just tell him what you did? <laughs> Kevin just kind of leaned back in his chair after he invited Christ into his life. And he goes, whoa, wow. Right? Yeah. But that's, that was kind of me. I mean, I kind of went, wow, this is, I sense something here. And so here's the deal, guys. Number one here. I didn't know much. I didn't know much, but I knew I was lost. Secondly, number two, I didn't have much faith, but what I had, I put in Jesus Christ. Because here's the, here's the deal. It's not the amount of faith that matters. It's the object of your faith. Uh, two guys on a cliff. Two guys. Both want to fly. In fact, I'll use this. Two guys. Both want to fly. Representing two guys. This guy says, hey, listen, I can do it. I can fly. I can make it happen. And he convinces himself to transfer all of his faith into himself for the ability to fly. So it's sort of transcendental meditation kind of idea. And he's on a cliff and all of a sudden he says, I'm a bird and he jumps off. And he flies for about a thousand feet until he hits the bottom. And this guy's going, wow, great faith. So much he could jump off. Great faith and a lot of faith. Wrong object. See, faith is putting your trust in something or someone trustworthy. See, it's not the amount of faith that you... Now, this guy, by the way, scared to death, never flown, but learns that there's a thing called a hand glider. And if you can uh, strap yourself in and maybe learn a few principles about what it looks like to do this, but nonetheless, he finds himself on the top of the cliff, now harnessed in with a hand glider, 
but his heart's beating. He's scared to death. He's never done it. But he has just a little bit of faith, enough to get him to, to jump off. But the faith that he has is not in himself at all. It's in the hand glider. And when he jumps off, he starts to fly. And all of a sudden, his faith rapidly grows in the hand glider. Because the little bit of faith he had, he put in the right object. This guy, a lot of faith in the wrong object. And so it, the deal is, guys, is if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, who's the only man that lived, died, and rose again, that's all I knew. And that's all you got to have. That's why you've ever heard the phrase, all, Jesus said, all you got to have to get into heaven is the faith of what? Anybody know? You see that? Really small. Small faith, big Savior. I didn't know, number three, I didn't change much at first outwardly, but something profound changed inside of me. Because I noticed that after I accepted Christ, my life still, I still was doing things I ought not to have been doing, but all of a sudden I found the things that I did, I no longer had the same interest and desire to do them. And so when it came to girls and drinking and all the stuff, uh, nobody ever came to me and said, you shouldn't do that. In my mouth, nobody ever said, you shouldn't swear. Uh, all, all of a sudden, things began to change inside of me. And all of a sudden, I'm going, I don't, I don't even want to do that anymore. And so it was profound. Because why? The Bible teaches I was born again. And born again, guys, is an altering of your nature. And it's called, uh, theologically, regeneration. And regeneration means this, an inner recreating of fallen human nature by a gracious action of the Spirit of God, where in regeneration, Christ changes our natural disposition from a, quote, lawless, godless, self-seeking ambition, which dominates man. And he changes that into a disposition of trust, Love and repentance, meaning I'm turning away from me. I'm turning to you, God. I can't do this, but you can. And I want to have it your way. I'm tired of having it my way. It's, it's that. It's a recreation. Okay, so from the religious right, guys, um, this is people who grew up in the church. There's a story in the Bible about a guy named Nicodemus, very religious guy. He sneaks out at night because... He doesn't want his colleagues to recognize he's got more questions when he already, already had the answers. By the way, it's a lot harder for a guy on the religious right to get connected to God than a guy on the religious left. Did you know that? Because the guy on the religious right thinks he's okay. There couldn't be any greater deception in the world. Because religious people become inoculated with religion. Which is a belief that because of what I'm doing, because of what I'm doing, God accepts me. No. There's nothing you do that makes you acceptable to God. Nothing. What makes you acceptable to God is the admission that you're not. And that's why Jesus used a little phrase. The two guys that go to the temple to pray. One said, 
very religious ordinate prayer. And then in this person, by the way, God, aren't you glad I'm not like that guy over there? Well, that guy over there, you know what he's praying? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, that's the guy that God heard. Not the religious dude. And so this guy, Nicodemus, who has put on all of the coverings of religion and has jumped through all the hoops, sneaks out at night one time and basically says to Jesus, there's something not right in me. I'm kind of missing something. And uh, here's what Jesus tells him in John 3. You have to, and he says it three times, be born again. It's where the phrase comes from. And he said, uh, number one here, this birth is from above. In other words, it's a supernatural rebirth. Meaning only God can make it happen. It can only be received, not by your good work and behavior, but by your simple trust in the one trustworthy person, Jesus Christ. And by the way, God didn't come just to forgive your sin. He came to alter your nature. And you have to be born again. Secondly, the must, it's an irreplaceable rebirth. It's irreplaceable. In other words, he said you, to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He didn't say, you know, it's an important thing to do. It's a good spiritual ambition to have. It might help you if you do this. No, he said you have to do this. And if you don't, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Thirdly, the you, it's a personal rebirth. It's between you and God. It's not between you and your family, you and your wife, you and your kids, you and your mom and dad. It's between you and God. It's very personal. And so the question, guys, is, is where are you in your journey with God? Have you come to a place where uh, you have received the gift of eternal life? That you've understood that the reason Christ died is not because he wants you to live a better life. He died because he wants to save you from yourself. And that in that He'll give you a better life. And that there has to be something that's recreated in your heart. Not that you do in your own merit, but that you place your trust in the grace given to you by God through Christ when he died on that cross and said, hey, listen, I've forgiven you and I want to give you the gift of eternal life. Do you want that now that you understand that you can't obtain it on your own? And guys, if you've never asked, that's what you do. It's so easy, it's profound. But you've got to ask with a little bit of faith in the only one that can answer it, which is Christ. Um, in Pennsylvania, there was what's called the Q Creek Nine. It was a bunch of guys who um, got trapped in a mine. You guys remember that story? And they were about 250 feet under the earth, and it was a coal mine, and it was nine guys. They called them the Q Creek Nine. They couldn't find them. And there was a guy that was kind of a, a geeky dude and somehow was able to map out exactly where they were. And just by, like, sticking a pin on a map, he said, I think they're maybe right here. And they dug a little three-inch hole straight down about 250 feet, and it just happened to be that the pocket that in the collapsed mine the pocket of these guys where they were, they found the exact spot. 
a miracle, really, that they even found them. The problem is, is they're 250 feet below the earth, and time is running out, and so is the air. And so the question is, how are these guys going to be saved? Well, you can imagine when the mine first collapsed, all those guys probably, like Zach Mayo, said, we're toast. In fact, we know they were toast and thought they were because they all tied a rope around themselves and then they put little notes that they all wrote and then they had sort of a, a container that they put all the notes in and strapped that to the rope so that if the water that was coming through the mine, uh, if they all drowned and died and perished and suffocated, that uh, when they found they could find them all together, including their last notes. Well, when the they pop this hole through. You can imagine, wow, somebody knows we're here. And um, so they begin to pump air down there and it began to, apparently the air pressure kept the water from coming up and drowning them. And so uh, eventually though, the question was how they get out. Now, here's what would have been foolish. What would have been foolish is if somehow the guys from above could tell the guys down there below in the mine, hey, listen, just learn how to hold your breath longer or start picking your way out you only got 250 feet to go straight up <laughs> right uh, the problem was is that would have been crazy because there's no way those guys could save themselves from the condition they were in so what happens is the guys above drill out a 30 inch hole and they then get a capsule and they drop this capsule down this, through this 30-inch hole. And one by one, when the capsule came down into the cave, the way each guy could be saved from his perilous doom was to simply get on the capsule. In other words, all he had to do was get on the capsule. All he had to have was faith in the guys above to bring him up on the capsule. One by one, each guy popped up from the pit of the earth to fresh air. If you ever saw that, you just go to YouTube and see it's amazing. And each guy is just like, oh, you could imagine. They were down there for days. And um, when they all were out a few days later, Stone Phillips with 2020 was doing an interview and he got all the guys together. They were sitting around a room and he said, okay guys, the first time you've been, it was very emotional. And you could tell the guys were you know, just still shaking. And he said, okay guys, anybody had anything to say? And one guy immediately blurted out and began to cry. And he went, all the glory goes to the guys above because our friends came to save us. All the glory goes to them. Because they were totally incapable of delivering themselves from the condition they were in. That is why the Bible says, today, good news, there is born in the city of David a Savior. Good news. So in this dark world, men, Christ has come. And that's what, by the way, is the beginning of how you as a man go from being a wiffle ball guy, you may have the religious covering, but you've got to invite Christ in your life. And you've got to have Him at the center of your life and begin to relinquish your will 
to him and have it his way. I'm telling you, all the benefits will come is the first of which will be impact. You'll start to have impact, which is what we all want, right? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray for us. And uh, guys, if you're here, I don't know where you are in your journey. I don't know what part God's been playing in your life. Uh, I don't know if you've got a, sort of a secret where you're going, God, I'm not inviting you in there. It's just me and me. But I'm tired of me. And I'd like to know you. And I'd like to invite you into my life. So I'm just going to whisper a prayer, guys. I'm going to say it publicly. But if you've never said, hey, God, I admit what I am. I believe in what Jesus did for me. And that heaven is not a reward, it's a gift. And I've never just asked you for the gift of eternal life to come into my life and rebirth me. I'm going to pray that prayer. And if that makes sense to you guys, you can pray it too. Okay? Dear God, I come to you right now and I just want to tell you that I admit to you that I am a guy who is a sinner and that I'm separated from you. Maybe nobody knows this, but I know it. And so now I want to tell you that I transfer my trust away from myself and I put my faith in Jesus Christ for what he did for me on that cross and I believe he forgave all my sin and now God I ask you would you please come into my life and would you please give me the gift of eternal life would you please alter my nature and now by faith in you, I say thank you.